Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 34 of the Essential X-Lapse, where uh, if you thought we hit some dramatic lows with the villains we got over the past couple of issues, well, uh, the one we get today might make them look like the second coming of uh, Magneto. I mean, not Silver Age Magneto, because I guess we were all getting tired of him, but, uh, you know, the Magneto we all like, we'll say. Today, we're going to meet the Locust. Okay, let's do it. Uh, X-Men number 24, September 1966, cover date, The Plague of the Locust. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils Warner Roth, inks Dick Ayers, letters Sam Rosen, edits Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now we open with Jean Grey preparing to leave the X-Men forever. And forever, we're about to find out, is a uh, pretty relative term. Um, Now she TKs some books on... TK off the professor's shelf and asks if she can borrow them. Xavier says not only can she borrow them, but she can keep them as a parting gift from the X-Men. Now Warren, he's pretty bummed out that he appears to have missed his chance with her, and Scott feels very much the same, but dares not let on about his true feelings. Now you might be asking, and you might have been asking yourself this since last episode, why does Jean have to split, and where is she going? Well, you see, it uh, took her folks this long to realize that, uh, hey, you know, our daughter graduated from that creepy bald man secret school way back in issue 7, and here we are in issue 24, and she's still living there. So, uh, what gives? Now, Stan gives us a very funny footnote here, making his best guess at which issue the graduation actually took place in, which, uh, that's pretty cute. Anyway, so the Greys have decided it's high time to have Jean transfer from the fictional Xavier School to... A fictional college. Metro College, in fact, uh, where Johnny Storm goes. Now, Xavier suggests that Jean can still come back and visit just as often as she'd like. Jean, not wanting to cry in front of her teammates, excuses herself and runs back to her room to change clothes. Xavier then has the fellas grab their present for Jean, and, uh, it's a corsage. I I guess the 60s were were a different time. Uh, Jean, in her civvies, is very happy with it and promises that she will treasure it always. From here, the goodbyes are said, and Warren and Scott drive her into the city. Now, it's pouring rain, not that it really matters, though I suppose it does add a bit more sadness to the scene. Anyway, the ride is silent. All three young mutants are lost in their own thoughts. Warren is worried that maybe Jean will meet and fall for Johnny Storm. Now, Jean is scared that Scott hasn't said all that much to her. Scott's also sad, but again, he dares not show it until he's cured of the curse of his deadly, deadly eyes. Now, upon arrival at Metro, Jean is greeted by a goofball named Ted Roberts, who whisks her away to take her to enrollment. Jean goes along and even agrees to go on a date with him. Now, this Ted is someone who uh, we in the biz might call a fast mover. It turns out that Jean only agrees to go out with him so she can distract herself from her beloved Scott. All right, so we're a few pages in here. How about we meet the baddie of the month, huh? We shift scenes over to a farmhouse, where an idiot in a locust costume is dropping a bunch of ionically treated insect eggs into the crops. These eggs immediately hatch, revealing themselves to be locusts, who grow with every single bite they take. Now, as they grow, the crunching becomes louder and louder, to the point where it's loud enough to wake up the farmer who takes a look out his window to see, you know, giant locusts, and an idiot dressed like one ravaging his crops. The next morning, the police arrive uh, to the now barren farmland. 
The farmer attempts to explain what he's seen the best he can, uh, and the officers are pretty split on whether or not to believe him. And one's really being a dick about it. While the other reminds them all that, hey, you know what, we live in the fantastical Marvel Universe, so this isn't the strangest thing we're going to see today. From here, we shift back to Xavier's, where the four remaining X-Men are busy doing the Danger Room thing. Then, Professor X interrupts to inform them that he just learned these crazy claims of giant locusts wrecking havoc at a farm. Now, he assumes that these locusts grew to their immense size due to... a mutation, and therefore they are under the purview of the X-Men. And so, not too long after, the X-Men's X-Copter is seen hovering over the Corn Belt. They land and find... You know, those giant locusts, which is pretty convenient. From here, we get a few pages of mutant-on-insect action, which actually veers into a bit of, a uh, odd brutality. Um, now, Kid Cool fashions an ice spear and literally harpoons one of the buggers. Like, he impales this poor thing. Like, it goes right through it. There's no blood, but, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure locusts have blood. I'm, I'm sure I could have looked that up, but I, uh, I didn't. Anyway, Cyclops then blasts the bejesus out of another one. And I tell you what, it's a good thing the Krakoan laws don't extend to insects. At least I don't think they do. Anyway, by now, the farmer is flying overhead in his own helicopter. I guess uh, helicopters were a lot cheaper back then. And he unleashes a cloud of DDT over the big bugs and the uncanny eczema. Once the cloud clears, Professor X orders his charges back and asks that they bring one of the dead bugs back with them for study. As our heroes take off, we see that the military has moved in with flamethrowers in order to finish off the locust plague. And... I tell you, this might just be the most violent issue yet. I mean, flamethrowers, impalements, it's, uh, it's pretty hardcore for, uh, for the time. Anyway, let's head back over to Jean. Let's check in with her. Now, she and Ted Roberts head out for a hot date at the Metro Student Center. Now, she notices some students mocking a strange bearded man. Jean asks Ted if he knows what this is all about, and so he explains that this goofball is Dr. Dr. Hopper. Mm, okay, a former professor at MC who was canceled for floating some crackpot theories about big bugs. And now he works at Ryan Chemicals. Gene claims to notice something about Hopper's voice. Uh, I doubt it's recognition, as this issue is his first of three ever appearances, and so she couldn't possibly be, you know, know it from anywhere. Maybe she's just on high alert. Now, it's worth noting there is a cameo of Johnny Storm and Wyatt Wingfoot here, which Stan gives us a footnote about, telling us that this is, in fact, not Johnny and Wyatt, just some lookalikes, because the real deals were currently in the Himalayas over in Fantastic Four. And, uh, you know, wow, imagine an editor caring this much, or at all, about continuity. It was, a, it was a different world back then. From here, we stick with Doc Hopper as he leaves the student center of the school he was fired from in disgrace, I mean, why would he be hanging out there in the first place? Um, has anyone listening ever gotten, like, fired and maybe even humiliated at a job? Would, would you keep popping up to grab lunch there? I don't know. Anyway, we follow Hopper back to his private mobile lab from Ryan Chemical, where it's made abundantly clear that he is, in fact, dun-dun-dun, the locust. Now, he uses his magno ray to blast a gross-looking caterpillar as well as a beetle, and the, the bugs battle for a bit. And I feel like there should be a law against this. Isn't this, uh, like, cruelty to disgusting insects or something? Anyway, Hopper watches the fight play out while vowing to take down the X-Men. Speaking of which, hey, let's see what they're up to. 
Professor X is conducting an insectoid autopsy on the giant locust carcass and is able to deduce that while this bugger is mutated, it actually isn't a mutant because artificial means were used to cause it to grow. Angel suggests that whoever did this might be a mutant then, but uh, nope, nope, not at all. Xavier says that the X-copter's got a portable Cerebro on it and it could sense mutants, or juggernauts, I guess, within a 25-mile radius and it picked up nothing. Just then, Jean Grey returns. She was gone for an entire six pages. Uh, This might actually be a quicker return than the last time Scott decided to quit the team. Anyway, once she's caught up to speed on the sitch, she tells all she knows about that disgraced weirdo, Dr. August Hopper. Xavier's interest and curiosity are piqued. Jean gives even more details on Hopper's crackpot theories. Now, they were regarding ionic bombardment, which caused insects to mutate and grow, to the point where they would threaten the destruction of mankind. Xavier orders Warren to give him a ride to Ryan Chemical so he might have a chat with old August. And so... We next join Charles at Ryan Chem, where he finds out that Hopper is on her leave of absence. Xavier does meet with a plant supervisor named Mr. Hamilton, who thinks that Hopper wouldn't mind at all if Xavier took a peek into his personal office anyway. Which, yeah, I don't think so, but okay. Now, once inside the office, Xavier uh, takes a page out of Menthalo's book and uh, reads the minds of Hopper's equipment. Okay. He also notices that there appear to be some samples of locust eggs missing. And also, a great big map of the United States with several X's marking various spots. I mean, for an evil genius, the locust is a friggin' idiot. Xavier figures he knows enough about enough, and he takes his leave. He telepathically reaches out to the X-Men, informing them that their numbers come up. It's time to go on a mission. And so they're being sent to the second X that the prof noticed on Hopper's map along the Corn Belt. And what do you know? The X-Men go there, and they happen across the Locust and his Locusts straight away. And they fight for a few pages. The skirmish ends when Iceman uses his second move against bad guys. You know, he ices up the ground beneath them. And this causes the Locust to slip and bump his butt on the ground. Just then, that giant beetle from Hopper's mobile lab shows up. And while the X-Men are scurrying away from that, the Locust sprinkles some more ionized eggs on the ground, and after hitting them with his magic flashlight, several dozen giant wasps hatch from them. Now, while Bobby and Hank run a giant ice spear through the beetle, the wasps approach. And I I tell you, I mean, this is a violent issue. Not for the weak of heart. Not at all. I don't know how this one got past the CCA. Anyway, Bobby continues being the MVP of the issue by creating a transparent ice shell around the team to keep the stingers out. Cyclops then starts blasting the buggers with his cursed eyes, and moments later, the army shows up with their flamethrowers to take care of business. Back to the X-copter, Professor X takes the team to the next X on Hopper's map. There, they find a car and a trailer at the edge of a cliff. Now, we can assume that the trailer is Hopper's mobile lab because, well, like in the very next panel, we're taken inside it where we learn that, yeah, this is Hopper's mobile lab. Just then, a strange bearded hermit... (laughs) comes walking up to the trailer. Oh boy, um, now this hermit begins ranting and rambling about the locust unleashing evil upon the world, and he appeals to the locust to change his evil ways and repent. But our bad guy ain't having none of it, and so he flies away. Now, it should come as absolutely no surprise that this hermit is actually Professor X using his mechanical legs and his, quote, hermit garb. 
Hermit Garb. I, I guess like this is in like the Xavier roleplay rotation. Then it's like, oh no, no, that's just Professor X in his Hermit Garb. <laughs> Ridiculous. Anyway, the Locust runs afoul of the X Men again, and you guessed it, they fight. Now you know how I like to mention how Warren's only training in the Danger Room is avoiding nets, and how every time they're in battle he seems to get caught in one. Well. That doesn't exactly happen here. This is more a case where he gets trapped in a web. So close enough, right? Then the Locust uses his magic flashlight to grow a pair of giant cockroaches. Gene notices that Hopper is controlling the bugs via his own costume antenna. He's got antennas on his head and uh, somehow is communicating through them. And so she TKs the antenna into a knot. Now this causes the bugs to go nuts. And well, uh... It seems like they're attempting to uh, mate with uh, Hopper's mobile lab. Uh, I mean, I tell you what, this trailer is a rockin'. Now, they hump this thing so hard that it snaps off its tow hitch and plummets off the side of the cliff and into the drink below. The creepy hermit then saunters back up to tell the locust that, you know, hey, I told you so, because Xavier's always gotta have the last word. And, well, that's all it takes for our baddie to renounce evil, and even decide to turn himself in for all the trouble he's caused. And that's that. Next issue, uh, the milestone 25th issue of X-Men, uh, continues our cavalcade of crappy villains with El Tigre. Now, this is usually where I share my thoughts on the issue in some sort of a concise fashion, um, only... I don't have anything to say about this one. I, I think uh, I probably said everything I need to say during the synopsis. This was more of the same. Um, I will say, I mean, I've been ragging on Professor X for quite a bit now, just uh, from being his formulaic and manipulative self here, and that's something that uh, I oddly hadn't noticed uh, the first time I read these, though... I mean, I first read these things in the mid to late 90s, and that's like the only time I ever read these... And around that time, it was kind of in the air that, uh, you know, we didn't entirely trust Professor X. You know, this was post-onslaught, post-Operation Zero Tolerance, where he was locked in the thing with the with the Hugh-mates or whatever, the, the, the girl with the huge eyes or whatever. And then he put together that team of, like, the all-new, all-deadly X-Men to celebrate the, uh, some sort of an anniversary. But uh, we were kind of wired not to trust him. So maybe I just received the stories a little bit differently. But I think uh, in the years since, I've done my own sort of uh, mental retcon, where Professor X was sort of like this uh, loving father figure back in the long ago. And uh, turns out, uh, no, not really. But um, <laughs> with that said, you know, I've been giving him some guff of late. But when he came sauntering up to the, to the trailer dressed as a hermit, in his hermit garb... Um, I, I laughed, because it's just so ridiculous that, I mean, the X-Men, like, he didn't tell the X-Men he was doing this. They were just in the same helicopter together, and they see him, and they're like, oh, it's Professor X in his hermit garb. Like, where did he change into his uh, his garb? Where did he change clothes? It's, it's insane. It, it really is. And, I mean, at the end of the day, what was even the point of it? Uh, he went in and told the Locust to repent, and then when the Locust didn't, the X-Men fought him anyway, and then he just said, hey, I told you so. It was really very stupid. Anyway, I think that's all I really have to say about it. After after saying I had nothing to say about it, I, I spoke about it for like three or four minutes. But uh, I think that's about it. Um, we are going to continue our path down the corridor of really bad villains for the next couple of episodes, and then uh, 
maybe get back to some semblance of uh, business as usual. At least, at least I hope so. I've been looking at the covers for upcoming issues, and I know that, uh, well, there are some treats coming our way. Well, with all that said, how about we visit the X-Men in the letters pages here? We got several letters. Let's uh, hop right in. We'll start with Mark in Michigan. Now, Mark loved X-Men number 20 and 21, found them to be very exciting. Loved seeing Lucifer again, and also enjoyed meeting the Supreme One. He does have a complaint, though, that there might have been too many thought balloons and word bubbles in this issue, to which Stan says that they'll try to keep their thought balloons under control moving forward. And shockingly, he doesn't just pass the buck to Rascally Roy. I figured he'd be like, hey, we got a new writer, and you take this up with him. But uh, no, no, he just says, hey, we'll take it under advisement. Next up, we got HP in Laos. Now, as he's in Laos, they're several months behind the American readers, so uh, they have just read X-Men number 16, which was the final chapter of the Sentinel Saga. Now, they question the logic of using a giant crystal to break the transmission from the Master Mold, Mother Mold, uh, that's current year, isn't it? Master Mold to the Sentinels, though uh, they don't really have any objections to it either. Loves all of Marvel's books, except for Millie the Model, because, yuck, girl book. Now, Stan hands this concern over to Rascally Roy, who gives us a pseudoscientific answer, which translates to, huh, you got us. Next, we got D. Bruce in Illinois, and this is a weird one. Kind of baffling, and it makes me wonder exactly what D. Bruce is talking about or referring to. He mentions a superhero called the Misfit, who I don't have any recollection of. He then goes on a screed about Marvel using communists as villains uh, into a philosophical discussion of college students acquiring knowledge and then asking challenging questions. I don't know. And I'm in good company because Stan doesn't seem to know either. He asks if D. Bruce may be meant to write into the congressional record but lost their address and just decided to write to Marvel instead? I guess that's as good a guess as any. And I do wonder if uh, D. Bruce is still reading comics, and if they are, what they think of the use of Russians as villains even to this very day. Anyway, Kim in Minnesota wants to know what Warren does with his wings when at a costume, which makes me wonder if Kim has read a single issue of this book before. Anyway, Stan lets them know that Warren folds them down when he's in his civvies, and he also takes this opportunity to poke a bit of fun at Hawkman over at Brand Ech for malting. Charles in New York loved X-Men number 20 and 21 and says they were the best issues yet. Really? Really? Um, he was happy to see Lucifer again and learn his origin story, as well as finding out how Professor X lost the use of his legs. He wishes that there were a longer fight scene between the X-Men and the big green robots, which, come on, dude, come on, really? He says that until Beast goes on a diet, we can make his marvel. And Stan only chooses to comment on Beast going on a diet. Irvin in Michigan. Now, Irvin wonders if Irving Forbush might be related to Milton Forbush, who he claims gave Abe Lincoln the theater tickets, gave George Washington the cold that killed him, and also forgot the Alamo. I don't know if this is a topical reference. Uh, a search of Google only brings up obituaries for people who happen to be named Milton Forbush, which... There were a bunch of people named Milton Forbush. I, who, who knew? Who knew? Uh, Stan says that he'll find out, but he confirms that Irving is the cousin of Benny Forbush, and that's the fellow who gave King Kong directions to the Empire State Building. And um, I don't have to go through the painstaking step-by-step process of mailing a letter again, right? Like, Irvin had to go fetch his stationery, a pen, you know, write it out, fold it in three, get a stamp. You know, I, I don't have to do that again, right? I mean, okay. Mark in Oregon, or Oregon, 
He enjoyed X-Men number 20 and warns Marvel not to overdo the, quote, bad guy imitating the good guy shtick. He cites that they, uh, they've been doing it a little too much of late. He also doesn't want to see too many villains in a single issue and claims that that's what turned him off from enjoying Fantastic Four Annual number 3. Now, Mark enjoyed the art here, but wishes they didn't change Eunice's look. And, I mean, they kind of had to, right? That was a story beat. He was in a phony X-Men costume. That was the whole thing. Okay, um, he liked the origins of Lucifer and Professor X, and he tells Stan not to overdo it with the X-Men's vehicles. Stan's going to take this under advisement and suggest that they might even run a batch of stories where the good guys imitate the bad guys. Those were the letters. Let's hop into the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as newsworthy notes and nutty nonsense from your friendly neighborhood bullpen. Item. Marvel heroes are coming to TV. We've got five animated films, and uh, animated should probably be in quotes. Uh, we got Captain America, which I actually got on VHS around the turn of the century. It's probably been... I, maybe I never watched it. I know I, know I have it. <laughs> um, also, Iron Man, Submariner, Thor, and Hulk. These are being produced by Grant Ray Lawrence Animation out of Hollywood, and all Marvelites need to call their local television stations to make sure they're going to show them. And we're going to be talking more about these animated specials uh, as, we, as we continue through the essentials here. Item, more Marvel merch. And hold on to your hats, folks. We got a lot of merchandise to go through. We've got the paperback books, which we already discussed a few episodes back. We got the second wave here featuring the Hulk, another Fantastic Four, another Spidey, and Thor, the most dramatic hero in the Marvel Universe, hitting the shelves in July. We got phonograph record albums with comics on sale in September. Plastic model kits for Captain America, Hulk, and Spider-Man also on sale in September. Hats and hoods. I don't know how you just buy a hood, but uh, I guess you can. And if you want to buy a hood, you can get one with Spider-Man, Thor, Iron Man, or Captain America on it. Those are on sale in August. Halloween costumes for Spider-Man and Captain America on sale in September. Three and a half inch buttons on sale in August. Those weird vending machine mini books are on sale now, and we talked about those, and you can find those online. They are really, really weird. Bubblegum trading cards and toy rings on sale now. Action doll with Captain America and Nick Fury costumes hitting in June. Board games and jigsaw puzzles. Captain America is on sale now. Spider-Man's coming in September. T-shirts and sweatshirts on sale in August. And also flicker rings, charms, and sticky labels coming out of vending machines hitting at some point during the summer. Item. More on the 25-cent summer specials, which I feel like we've been talking about for like the past 15 episodes. Of course, we got Millie the Model and Thor. Um, there's also a little bit more on the Marvel superheroes King Size special. It should come as no surprise that they are all reprints. We get the origin of Daredevil, we get some early Avengers stories, but most interesting of all, we get some Golden Age goodness from Submariner and the original Human Torch. And uh, I've been reading some of the Golden Age Submariner of late, and uh, it's brutal. And I, I, don't mean, I don't mean brutal as in bad, but uh, a lot more violent than I expected it to be. I mean... The first page Namor's on, he, you know, crushes somebody's head and stabs them multiple times, so it's interesting. Item. Now, this is the scoop on subscriptions here. $1.75 for a year's subscription to any Marvel mag, which is $2.25 in Canada and $3.25 foreign. Stan promises that his soulful subscription sweetie, Nancy Murphy, will dole out two-tone no prizes for good penmanship on the order forms. Item. Folks who want to see Jack Kirby's ink work rejoice. 
the king penciled and inked the Captain America story appearing in Fantasy Masterpieces number 4 on sale now-ish. Item. Stan thanks Princeton University's Wing Cleosophic Society for the warm reception they gave him when he recently spoke there. Now, this society is the oldest collegiate, collegiate debate and political union in the United States, founded in 1765 by students, including future President James Madison and future milk trivia guy Aaron Burr. Item. Denny O'Neill moves into a trash can. Okay, um, now Denny is so upset that he isn't spoken of enough in the bullpen bulletins page that he decided to live away from humans and move into an east side garbage can. So I guess we can direct our letters there if we had a time machine. Anyway, item. Now the poll results on whether or not Stan should keep slamming the competition are in. And would you believe it's a tie? Well, personally, I don't believe that for a moment, but we'll let Stan get away with it. Uh, He says that they'll just play it by ear from this point on. Next up, let's head into the mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Fantastic Four number 55, which features the return of the Silver Surfer. Spider-Man number 41 introduces the Rhino. Avengers 32, the Sign of the Serpent. Daredevil number 20 uh, gives us a brand new villain. And I checked the Marvel Wiki to see who this is, and the only new villain to show up here is uh, Clyde, the Owl's Goon. Okay. Thor 132, Thor heads into the Black Galaxy. Strange Tales 149, S.H.I.E.L.D. versus AIM. And it makes me wonder if AIM was them. Hmm. Also, Doctor Strange versus Kalu. Suspense 82, Titanium Man versus Iron Man. Again. And also Captain America vs. the Adaptoid, and get used to me saying that. Tales to Astonish 84, Namor Enslaved, and the Hulk Rampages Through New York City. Sergeant Fury number 34 features How Fury Met Dum Dum. Marvel Collector's Items Classics number 5, we got lots of reprints here Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Hulk, and The Watcher. And I'm sure that Watcher story is a doozy. Marvel Tales number 4 features reprints of Spider Man, Ant Man, and Human Torch. Fantasy Masterpieces number 4, Golden Age Captain America and Jack Kirby Inks. Thor, King Size Special number 2, The Destroyer vs. Thor and the Warriors 3, plus some, quote, much-requested, unquote, reprints. And Marvel Superheroes King Size Special number 1 features, again, the origin of Daredevil, the Avengers vs. the Space Phantom, and the Golden Age Namor and Human Torch. Now, we usually wrap up the bullpen with a look into the Merry Marvel Marching Society, but, uh... Well, we don't get an update here. I guess maybe they had a slow month, or... I don't know, maybe they just forgot they ran out of space. But uh, no update. We can probably assume that there's at least 26 new members, and uh, four or five of them are probably radio DJs. Okay, from here, let's go into our own mailbag here. We got a great letter from our friend Walt. He's talking about X-Men number 22. He says, Another solid episode. I'm continuing to enjoy your coverage of these Silver Age issues. All the more, I f- as I figure out, it's pretty unlikely I'll ever get around to reading them for myself, so I get to experience them vicariously through you and your coverage. Well, thanks so much, Walt, and I tell you what, that's uh, one of the reasons I decided to go all the way back to the Silver Age when uh, when I launched this. I wasn't sure what we were going to do in the off days between DCBS shipments, and uh, by the way, I'm still waiting for my shipment. It's been sitting at the Peoria, Arizona FedEx location for three or four days now. Still pending. I <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe they're scanning it for... Uh, I-, I couldn't even say. But uh, it's not at my house yet. That's why we're still doing the essentials. So I was wondering what we would do to fill the days in between 
shipments of the new stuff as we were, you know, getting closer and closer to catching up and then being, you know, totally caught up. And I thought about going back to the start of the Claremont run. I thought, I thought about doing some of the 90s stuff. I thought about doing the, the blue and gold stuff that sent me running for the hills. I even thought about doing the Rosenberg run. But then I started to reminisce about the days where I used to be kind of like a walking X-Men encyclopedia. And this was, I mean, this was in the late 90s when there was far less continuity than there is nowadays. So it's not like I'm bragging or anything. I just, uh, I read these books way too much. And I, uh, I stuck around on, on, letter, on message boards and I read the letters pages and I was on Usenet. And I was, I don't know, I was just really on top of, uh, of most things X-related. So I miss those days. Because now, I mean, so much of it is just so muddled. So I figured the best way to do that is to go back to the earliest stuff. And um, I've heard from several listeners of the show that the old stuff just isn't for them. You know, it's hard to read. And, and I mean, <laughs> look at the past few episodes here. We're fighting the damn porcupine and the locust. These, <laughs> these aren't the most... E- these don't go down easy. You know, they're pretty rough at, at points. So... Yeah, I figured this would be a fun way to reintroduce myself to the Silver Age stuff while also sharing these with folks who may not want to read them. So I'm glad you're able to experience them through this program. Uh, Walt continues, It's also very cool to get to hear the letters and such, and I'm not listening just for those, but they're definitely a great part of things. And I would listen to a show just about the X-Issues, and I'd also listen to a show just covering the letters pages, so this is the best of both worlds. Now, here's an idea for Marvel. How about you give us an omnibus just collecting letters, pages, bullpen, bulletins, etc. from all their books for whatever range of years? And yeah, that would be amazing. I don't know why they haven't done that yet. I figure, how much could something like that actually cost? You know, I haven't mentioned it, but the past couple of episodes of this show, or past couple of issues that we've covered, actually included the letters, pages in the Marvel Unlimited version. So if you're following along in Marvel Unlimited, or if you have access to Marvel Unlimited and want to see some of these old letters pages, you can pop into, you know, issues 23, 24, 25, and you'll see those letters pages, the ones that uh, we just discussed here on the program. You won't find the bullpen, though. You will not find the bullpen, which is unfortunate because, I mean, they're very, very fun, and they're not something you see every day. You know, I mean, I always talk about what we see every day on things like social media platforms and websites. It's like... Very samey, you know, very samey, very, uh, very like Beatty. <laughs> and uh, here we're doing bullpen bulletins that, you know, only we fake as comics historians care about. But I definitely love them. It's uh, adding a little bit of a gestaltiness, if I'm using that word correctly. And I, I use that word way too much, and I'm sure 80% of the time I'm using it wrong. But uh, hopefully you all know what I mean by it. Just putting ourselves in that time. And uh, I love it. And Stan did joke that he was going to put out a whole book of uh, bullpen bulletins, call them, uh, what was it, Marvel Collector's Item Classic Bullpens or something like that. And uh, that gave me an idea that uh, I might I might start pulling these segments out of these episodes and compiling them to, to release later on as a, uh, you know, just as a letters page bullpen bulletin thing, just to give some folks who may be on the fence about following this show a little bit of a, a peek into what comes along with the chatter about the actual, you know, X-Men story in the book. Walt continues citing the time he quipped on Facebook about how recently we did an episode covering an X-Men 21 or 22, and how now we're even further into the Essential X than any other current X-Men stuff of the main title, of course. And he asks if the the pre-Hoxbox version of Uncanny only got up to issue number 22 as well, and 
I actually don't even think it got up that high. I think it was like 19 issues. I, I could be mistaken. I know, I don't remember what episode it was, but we did go through how quickly the X-Books are getting canceled or, or just rebooted nowadays. And uh, I did go through a list of, you know, where each volume ended. And it's some pretty, uh, I mean, I'm using the word sobering here very dramatically, but it's a little bit sobering how quickly... These books get uh, the plug pulled on them and get restarted. Now, Walt wraps up with a, an attempt at getting a fake-ass no prize regarding the Mimic knowing what it feels like to be growing wings. And he says, well, he's getting the powers of an X-Man, and Angel's one of them, so something's going on with his back, so of course it must be wings. And yeah, that I mean, that's as good an answer as we're going to get. It's certainly more thought than Stan put into it back in the long ago, but... You figure if the Mimic knows he's taken the X-Men's powers and suddenly he feels something happening in his back, what else is it going to be? It's got to be Wings. So yes, you get the fake-ass no prize and it's been sent to you, so hopefully it reaches you in good health and you enjoy it. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts, Walt. It really means a lot. Now, speaking of meaning a lot, let's head over to the shout-outs before we cut on out of here. I want to thank the folks who clicked the little like thing or the retweet thing or the little heart on whatever social media application that I shared these shows on. We're going to start by shouting out some folks on Twitter. I want to start with Craig Luckenbach, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Chris Bailey, The Shadow Punk Comic, 21st Century Boys, Mark Jagger, Billy D, Walt Nealon, Jacob Jones, Dave Schultz, Joe Crawford, and Jeremiah Jones. Thank you all so much for helping to uh, signal boost this little program. Then over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Chris Bailey, Jesse D. Young, Billy D, Walt Nealon, and Jeremiah. As I say, well, pretty much every episode, uh, it means a whole lot more to me than it probably should that you'd uh, engage with my post. And if I were a more well-rounded and uh, secure person, it probably wouldn't matter to me all that much. But there are only so many meds a man can take a day, right? So thank you all so, so much. And uh, hey, you know what? It's about that time where I thank you all for spending a little bit of your day with me today. It really does mean so much to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>